You guys can sit, have a seat if you want. You can stay standing and get real uncomfortable. We try to get people with uh, more distinguished sounding accents than me to do readings because the credibility level goes instantly up when you say Isaiah <laughs> instead of Isaiah. It's awesome. Don't worry. Don't change. Uh, hi, my name is Brad. For, uh, I'm happy to be with you today. I guess we could start saying Merry Christmas. Is that okay now? Last week I would have been punched, but this week it's okay. Uh, would you pray with me and then we'll get rolling for the morning. Father, we thank you that we come to this season where we all uh, focus our attention on the most masterful move you ever made. You're with us. Uh, I like to think of it as, uh, as the, uh, the strategy that took the enemy off guard. Uh, you came here, the last thing that everyone ever expected. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are with us and all the ramifications that come from that. Spirit, would, your, uh, would you begin your work at, at today? Would you work through our hearts and our minds as we prepare uh, to hear and to receive a communion that we remember um, the cross and what all this points to? In your name we pray. Amen. My son has hit the dreaded phase, and I'm calling it the 2.35 in the morning phase. Some of you are aware of this. If you have a four, three, or four-year-old, 2.35 in the morning happened this morning. In fact, it happened, yeah, at 2.35, I was awake. Because out of nowhere, I hear, Daddy! And it's, I'm trying to be quiet because I don't want to scare you. But it's this blood-curdling scream. And I go rushing in there thinking that someone's broke through his window. And he won't stop screaming until someone comes in, either Carrie or myself. Uh, And last night was Carrie's turn to take NyQuil, so I was the one that was awoken. And so I run in there, what? Will you sit with me? Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's not cute. It it was at first. Like, oh, he wants us to be with him. And usually if it's around 9.30 and there's a Hallmark movie on that I can get out of watching, uh, I'll go do it. But at 2.30 in the morning, oh, it is awful. And then we'll go back, okay, good night, you're fine. There's nothing in the closet. You can see the closet. And I took the doors off of his closet so he could see inside of it that there's nothing there. And then 10 minutes later, ah, again, run in there. Will you sleep beside me? And what I'm getting is that this boy is an extreme extrovert and hates being by himself. He wants to always have fun. He wants to always be around a party. If you are anything on the Enneagram that resembles a seven and always looking for fun, this is my son. Uh, We haven't figured out if it's healthy or unhealthy yet, but this is just him. And so he wants us to be with him because when we're with him, He's not afraid. When we're with him, the boogeyman in the closet that doesn't exist, uh, furly, further doesn't exist, and we can take him. He'll ask me to go beat up whatever's outside, take the monsters away, because he wants somebody with him. There's this withness that we all have and we all desire. None of us really wants to be alone. Sure, there are times of, uh, of solitude where you just want to get away and go for a drive and turn off the radio and have no one talk to you. That's one thing. But there's still a desire that each and every single one of us have to have somebody with us. It might not manifest itself at 2.30 in the morning and you screaming. It might. 
But there's this desire that we have somebody that has our back. Somebody who's bigger, stronger, faster, in my son's case, a bigger superhero, sometimes what he calls me if I'm not the bad guy. Somebody we want to be with us to protect us, and that is an innate desire that each and every single one of us have had since the very beginning. We desire to experience and wonder about God. And the great thing is that God has the same desire towards us. And he's moved heaven and earth to be with us. The majority of scripture is not about a group of people who are waiting to be taken off the planet in hopes of a better place. The majority of scripture is exactly the opposite, is of God trying to get and break into our worlds to show us that he is actually with us. This is the beauty of Advent, and really it should be studied more than just in December. The beauty of Advent is that we stop and realize just how far God went to be next to us, just how far he came, just as much as he gave up. And so this morning as we turn and start week one of Advent, it's with, the whole theme is with, and what with means. And we're going to look at John 1, if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. John is a unique person when it comes to writing his gospel. 90% of what John wrote is only found in John. Uh, That could be useful in some kind of Bible trivia if you ever need it. But that's that's one of the unique things about John. He's kind of off in his own world on the island of Patmos, writing what he remembers about God. And he does this to prove to the people around him, the philosophers around him, that God was not this, in, this distant, unknown deity, but that God was actually close and constantly trying to be next to us. John wanted us to know that Jesus wasn't this lesser version of God. He wants us to know that Jesus was God. And when we realize this, when we realize who actually Jesus was, everything changes because he is with us. And that changes our entire world. We aren't alone anymore. And so today, as we kick off Advent, I want us to look at the advantages of with. And I want to point out three advantages that John takes up in John 1, 1 through 18. the, The with of Jesus brings light to our darkness. The with of Jesus speaks truth in the midst of all these lies. And most importantly, all of that leads us to with of Jesus offers us grace. The first thing that we see is that with offers us light. How many of you were afraid of the dark at one point? Be honest, how many of you are still afraid of the dark right now? Tony, I see you. Okay. Some of us are still afraid of the dark. And honestly, it makes sense. When it's dark, you have no idea what's around you. When Carrie and I first moved up here, we lived in this 900 square foot studio thing in Green Lake. It was right underneath a street light. And our neighbor had a a sun-like halogen motion sensor uh, that would go off with every single raindrop. The sensitivity had to be turned down, and I couldn't figure out how to do it without talking to them, and they were never around. And so what would happen is we would turn out the lights to go to bed, and then all of a sudden, boom, it would illuminate the entire room. Uh, It didn't matter the shades we got. Everyone just said, oh, just buy the blackout shades. Didn't matter, because it penetrated even that. It It was so bright, but we wanted darkness. We wanted to go to sleep. So when we moved, we moved to this place where there's the street light is a few houses down. No one are, and there's trees around us. It is pitch black, which is the ex- exact opposite of what we had. So darkness is awesome when you're trying to go to sleep. 
Darkness like this is terrible when you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And so our eyes couldn't adjust, and so we'd end up taking our cell phones, and, and, or I would, I don't know if Carrie did, because I was asleep, and, and using the cell phone as a flashlight so we don't run into the wall, which I did a couple of times. I thought the door was there, and boom, I'd hit the wall. Darkness makes us more alert. Darkness is scary because we can't see what's going on around us. So John talks about darkness he talks about how in the beginning there was darkness, and he's hearkening back to uh, what happened in Genesis 1. Darkness ruled the day, and our eyes are always constantly trying to find light. Because when it's dark, just like here in John, when it's dark, your eyes scan the horizon for anything to focus on that's bright. Here's what John says. In the beginning, it's the same three words that you find in Genesis 1, just transposed into the Greek language. But John is doing this intentionally. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all mankind. Now there is a lot here just in these three verses like usual. We don't have time to nerd out and go through everything that he's saying, but here's one thing that he's doing. John in his entire book is showing us that through Jesus God is recreating humanity. If you pay attention as you read through John, you'll start seeing things like, and this was another day, on another day, and there's, coincidentally, seven days. And what happens on the eighth day of the new week? Jesus raises from the dead. It's a new creation. On the seventh day, the day we rest, is the day that Jesus rested in the grave. And so there's this whole arc that John is trying to play out with his gospel to show that there is a newness happening because Jesus was with us. It's Genesis 1 retold. It's the book of Genesis 1 retold, but it's through the eyes of Jesus. This is not about something that happened at one place at one time, according to John. It's about something. Uh, it's about a creator, God, who was acting in a new way in reaching his much-loved creation. And what was the first thing that God created in, in Genesis? Do we know? Light. This is why you're in the front row. Way to go. And he came late. This, here's what Genesis 1 says. Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was there, and it was good. And he separated the light from darkness, and he called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is pivotal in John's mind, because the first act of God is to take what was chaos in darkness and create order in light. And in John's mind, God had been doing that ever since, taking darkness and chaos and creating order and light. Because he knows that we always are searching for something to focus on. We're always searching for light and our eyes will strain until we find it. The smallest particle of light is called a photon. I read this and so I, it's not a photon blaster for you Star Trek fans. It's a photon. It's a, it's a little ray of light. And the smallest version of light is this photon. And scientists for the longest time thought that there had to be at least seven photons in order for our eyes to see any, any form of light. There was this article in the LA Times a couple years ago and I saved it 
just for today. And it said that uh, these scientists got together and they wanted to test the hypothesis of how many photons can the naked human eye see. They have all these instruments that create the perfect environment and they can see with their instruments one single photon of light. They didn't know what the human eye could do. So they took these test subjects and they sat them in a room pitch black for 40 minutes. And then they hooked them up in front of this lens and they would flash a photon in front of them to see if their eyes could see it. And much to their surprise, their hypothesis said no. But what the human eye detected was a flash of light to, the, to like 60% of the test subjects saw this light. The person with contact lenses did not. And so they see that our human eyes are sensitive enough to see any form of light, even at its smallest, uh, even at its smallest uh, makeup. And I read this article and said, of course it makes sense, because we weren't meant to live in darkness. We weren't meant to be surrounded by pitch black. However, sometimes we get so used to this darkness and we think that darkness is as, as, as this is how it's supposed to be and we think that darkness will always win, that we're going to be trapped here forever. But look how John ends this section in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness brings fear because we weren't meant for it. So our eyes scan because we're hungry for anything else. Darkness makes your senses go into spidey mode where you start hearing things, where you start smelling things, where you start uh, acting as defense. This is, this is the way we're made up because we're, we're trying to survive. But God says, I want light in this world. I want light in the darkness because where there is light, there is healing. Where there is light, there is hope. And John tells us that though we might find ourselves in what seems like trapped in the darkness of our lives, because Jesus is with us, there is no amount of darkness that will ever be able to squish this light. And he tells us this, and he's pointing ahead to the cross where they tried to extinguish the darkness, and they thought they succeeded. But on that day, new creation came. Jesus came with us to the darkest parts of our lives and shines a light so that we could be made whole again. Jesus moves into the darkest places in order to bring his light, his peace, his joy, and his hope. It's almost as if Jesus takes the flashlight and says, there's a dark corner, I need to go there and shine the light here so that there is no darkness there. My nephew Carson is crazy. He's, this was, he's seven or eight now, but when he was four or five, my, my dad and mom got him a flashlight and, uh, dark Carson turned it on and was amazed by it. And so what he did then is when the sun went down, he turns the flashlight and looks at my brother, Bob and says, dad, let's go find dark. It's just so, so he can shine its light there and it won't be dark anymore. This is what Jesus does. This is the hope of with that the dark places in our lives can be whole again. The places that you're hiding of shame can come to the light so there can be healing. With brings light to our darkness, but with also speaks truth into our lives. Look in verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness, to testify. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into this world. 
John's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner, as Isaiah says, Isaiah says, to, uh, that, to pave the way of Jesus, to make the path straight. John the Baptist was sent as someone to say, I've seen this, let me tell you what's coming. And I, I like to look at it this way. You're in a pitch dark room and someone turns on the lights with no warning. How do you react? You squint I react with my hands over my face like someone punched me in the chest because my eyes are so used to the dark that all of a sudden the light overtakes you. It's like we're vampires after a while. John, with sense, was a warning to everybody around him saying, hey, we're going to turn on the lights. You might want to prepare yourself for this, which is the nicest thing someone can do. But this is the problem. John had such a following that people thought he was the light, and so they started following him. And he kept saying, no, 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 no. I'm telling you about someone who's coming. And they said, oh, but you're the new uh, Elijah. You've come. You are the Messiah. No, I am only pointing to someone. The light's going to turn on soon. You might want to get ready for it. And so he would say, repent. The kingdom of God is coming close. The lights are about to be turned on. Prepare your hearts to see it. This is what John was doing. But some people fell into it. It serves as a warning for us. In our darkness, it's so simple for us to fall for an imposter. In our darkness, it seems that there are sometimes way too many options to find light, and so we go chasing for it. We fall for it. We choose the lights of money. We chase the lights of security, of relationships, neat and tidy answers, pleasure, whatever it is that we think will bring us the hope that we want, we start chasing it. One of the things I wanted to see so much when we first moved up was the aurora lights, the borealis. I can never really say that right except for just now. And so I came up and someone said uh, that this night, it was a summer night, we didn't have any kids so we were more free to live. And so uh, as we were sitting there, they said, uh, uh, I read on the forum, hey, tonight's a good night to see the aurora. And I was like, I've always wanted to see the aurora. I just did not want to go to Iceland. And so... I said, let's go. And I looked at Carrie and said, the aurora is coming tonight. Let's go find it. And she said, sure, whatever. She had no idea what she was in for. And so the forum said, go to uh, this little state park up by Port Townsend. It's going to be a great place to see it. I was like, sure, let's go. I've never been there. So we hopped on the ferry. We drove up there and we waited. The sun went down and we waited and we waited And we waited, and then the park ranger came out around 11.30 and said, y'all need to leave. And so we left. We didn't see the lights. But as we were leaving, the 20 or so of us that were there said, hey, we just read that you could see him up on Whidbey, on Fort Ebby, something like that. And so we hop on the ferry. We're like, yeah, let's go. It's 11.30 at night. Carrie is a little less excited than she was. I said, we got to do it. We're already pot committed. Let's go. And so we hop on the ferry. We go. We drive up to this park. We, we park and we sit and we wait and we wait and we think we see something. We're like, wait, that's it. And we get all excited. Nope, that's Vancouver. <laughs> and we chase this light. And then someone said, you go up a little bit north. Pretty soon we're up on deception and it's two in the morning and there's Nothing. We were deceived. That's why we were at deception. (laughs) And so I looked at Carrie and I said, should we go home? And she didn't even answer, which was the answer. Pretty soon, 
the next light we were going to see was going to be the sun, and that was going to end badly for me because I had to preach the next morning. And, and so we went home. We chased this light or this idea of light all night long, and what did it get us? Tired. Sometimes we do that in our life, right? We, we hear about something. And we think, oh, if I could just chase this down, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have hope. Then I'll have this. And then we chase and we chase and we chase and we exert all this energy only to be let down again. We fall for it. I asked one of the guys as we were leaving the Whidbey, the deception part after we realized what had happened to us. And I said, how do you know when you see it? And he he said he'd seen it a few times. I don't know if I believed him. Uh, He said, well... You'll know when you see it. Everyone will know when you see it. And I think that's true. When you finally see the true light, when you finally come to your senses that you can stop chasing after whatever you're chasing because it's not going to bring you the hope and peace that you wanted, when you finally grab a hold of that and you see that the only hope that you can have is the fact that with Jesus, you can only have that with Jesus. When you see that, then you'll realize what John meant in verse 9, the true light that comes gives light to everybody in the world. We live in a world that is searching for a diagnosis to its condition. There are countless voices providing messages that promise to alleviate our struggles or settle our questions that come to us. We hear politics, messages uh, from economic reports arguing that if we just re-elect somebody or don't elect somebody, then all of our problems will be solved. We hear economic reports saying that if we just restructure uh, our equity or reorganize and, and let charity win the day, then everybody will be happy. And all of this is a false light, not the true one. We hear other voices that are more personal, arguing that the problem is not a sociological problem, but a human problem. The human soul is in need of renewal. And if we provide the right education, the right therapy, the right vision for our neighbor, then we'll be fine. It's pop psychology. And it's fun. And sometimes it's helpful. But it's not true. Sometimes the messages that are heard in churches on Sunday are these very messages. But John didn't come to give us one of these messages. John came, John's message is not a message that offers a way to hope. John's message and our message of with is that Jesus was the only hope. You can chase everything you can, philanthropy to everything else, And if you're not chasing the Jesus who is the only hope, you'll find yourself lost. Because it's not about a solution, it's about a person. And this person is what offers you and I the last thing that light gives us, grace. This is what you and I are searching for. In John 1.14... This is a huge verse in our theologies. The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Eugene Peterson says it this way. The word moved into the neighborhood. It came and lived next door. Jesus moved in next door to us. The word became flesh tells us that God is intent and communicating with us, not about concepts and ideas. He wants to communicate with us about himself. The word became flesh tells us that the grace we long for is accessible and not hidden off in some kind of monastery or just for the super smart to know about. 
He came to communicate about himself and bring it to us. The word became flesh tells us that Jesus wasn't just another man, that he was God himself. He wasn't, inspired, he wasn't just an inspired carpenter or a model human. Jesus was God taking on the same skin suit that you and I wear, experiencing the same struggles, the same hurts, the same fears, same temptations, desires, emotions, everything that you and I go through. It tells us that though we feel like we're alone, we're not. We have a God who desires to be with us. And on only that, he he desires to give us the one thing that you and I need the most. Grace. Look in verse 16. Out of his fullness we have received in place of, we have received grace in place of the grace already given to us. Another way of putting this is that we have received grace after grace after grace after grace after grace. It's an unending supply. It's an ocean that you and I are sinking in. It's as plentiful as the air we breathe. The good news about John, and he wants us to know about God being with us, is that he's not angry coming with us, coming down to punish us. He's with us in order to be with us because that's what God desires most. I was on the weightlifting team in high school or the weightlifting club. And so what that meant was I would get up at 5.30 in the morning, drive to school to be there at 6, and then I had a key to the weight room, and me and my friends would just lift weights for an hour and a half before school started at 8.15. And our teacher, our coach, seldomly showed up. He just kind of entrusted us with the keys and said, don't kill anybody, and that was fun. And so we didn't kill anybody, but every once in a while, Coach Davis would come to us at lunch and say, gentlemen, this is how he always addressed us. That's how coaches do it, I guess. Gentlemen, I'll see you in the morning. And we all looked at each other and went, oh, no. What'd we do? And so we devised the plan. We were going to get there at uh, 545, a little earlier, and we were going to clean everything just in case he's mad at us for leaving it a mess. So we organized the weights. We got the Lysol and scrubbed everything down, which is something we should have done more regularly looking back on it. And we, we disinfected, the place looked, smelled good, it was shiny, and then here comes Coach Davis, he parks and he walks in, he sits down and goes, gentlemen, and we're like, oh, here it comes. And he goes, I am so thrilled to be with you this morning. Let's lift some weights. And we all went, okay. A lot of us have this picture of God that he's coming down and he's coming to punish He's coming to say, you're it, and this is how much trouble you're in, and you, no more keys to the weight room for you. In fact, you're all grounded and you're condemned. This is what we're expecting when Jesus comes to us. But that's not what happens. Jesus comes, in the words of John, he comes in and brings grace. John's book will develop from this point on to show us just how much grace that Jesus is bringing to us. The entire book follows this theme. In John 3, Nicodemus comes. Nicodemus is a little bit too embarrassed to see Jesus in the middle of the daytime. So he comes at night, darkness, and he comes to the light of Jesus. And then what's Jesus give him? Grace. Doesn't condemn him for asking stupid questions. He says, Grace, let me answer your questions. In John 4, there's a woman by the well. She's shameful. She has a past. And she, she meets Jesus. And what's Jesus give her? Grace. There's a blind man. And there's this question about how this man was blind. But what does Jesus give him in John 8? Grace. 
The woman trapped in adultery. Everyone wants to stone her. Jesus writes some things in the sand. What's he give her? Grace. Lazarus' sisters, devastated by grief. Jesus doesn't come to them and say, get over it. There's a resurrection. No, he weeps and then says, grace. The whole move of Jesus, the whole move of God with us is grace. It's you and me at 2.35 in the morning. Grace. It's the fear of being alone. Grace. It's our fear of abandonment. Grace. It's the fear of failure. Grace. It's grace for the fear of shame. It's grace for not having it all together all the time. It's grace for not doing it right. It's grace after grace after grace after grace. This is what Jesus, is, Jesus offers to us. It's a grace that we can't earn. It's a grace that God loves us, not because you're perfect. He loves you in spite of you not being perfect. It, doesn't, it means that you can't do anything to make God love you less. Grace. It means that you are invited to take a place at his table. And you don't even have to shower before you get there. It's grace. Grace means that God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because none of us are as we should be. Grace is not a love predicated on our performance. It's grace after grace after grace. And the idea of this grace isn't that we don't change. In all of these places where Jesus offers grace, he offers grace. And then the challenge is this. Live according to the grace that you've been given. It's grace that loves you just like you are and says, I want to bring you to a place of hope and peace and experiencing more of this grace. And all of us are invited to experience it. This Advent season, there's going to be this temptation to perform. There's going to be this temptation to buy the right thing, to say the right thing, to send the right card to the right person. Are all your holiday cards out yet? to send your holiday cards out at the right time. There's going to be this pressure to do things perfectly. And we're going to fall into it. And there's going to be this pressure to have your life in order. And there's going to be this pressure to have the right devotional, to have this and this all in place. And what this does is it takes us away from the whole point of the season, which is God is with us to give us grace after grace after grace upon grace upon. And no more does he show us this grace than on the cross where he says to somebody who didn't deserve it, today you're going to be with me in paradise. How does he say that to a thief? Grace. And he says the same thing to you. Maybe this Advent season is the first time where you finally get a grasp or try and get a grasp on just what grace means. God is with you. Grace for your darkest moments. Grace for the mistakes where you chase the wrong light. And grace for your life going forward. We open this Advent season with celebrating communion. Because communion is a picture of what Jesus did on the cross for us so that we might experience grace upon grace. Jesus died his body broken, his blood shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins and then three days later that we can no longer worry about death. He gave us grace upon grace upon grace. 
And so today, we'll, we'll go through communion and we'll, we'll observe it. But before we observe it, I want you to pause. I want you to ask yourself, where in my life do I need grace? Grace for yourself. Where in my life am I wanting God's grace? Where in my life can I show grace? Where can I embody this grace? And when you're ready, come forward. So I'd like to invite the uh, communion servers forward. I'm going to pray and then we'll take part in communion. Father, we thank you that you give us grace. And not just one dose, one helping of grace, you offer seconds and thirds and fourths and you give us a bag of leftovers as we walk out the door. You give us grace upon grace, a grace that is unending. And so Lord, today, may we realize your grace. That you graced us with your presence so we can have hope in the middle of darkness. That we can follow the true light which is you. So Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the invitation to come. Lord, may we remember the grace that we've been given. In Jesus' name.